our book study of Ephesians. We're going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. If you're brand new with us, uh, we are um, titling this series, I Am Blank. It's all about finding our identity in Christ. We need to know that, right? We all want to know our identity, and the Bible tells us exactly who we are, and so we don't have to guess. Even though some of us were searching and searching and searching, and we let um, friends, family, uh, naysayers, we let the world, we let the... Um, the media, we let a whole bunch of people tell us who we are, but God says, I want to tell you who you are. I created you. I get that right, and I'm going to define you. And so that's beautiful to know, and it's freeing to know. And so tonight, we're going to walk through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, a good chunk of verses here. And we're talking about how we are reconciled. I am reconciled. Now, in order to understand reconciliation or a unifying, a coming together is what reconciliation means. You got to understand separation or segregation. Um, Now, some of you know my story. I grew up in a little town north of Manhattan uh, with about 150 people in this town, and I grew up white. I know that's a surprise because of my skin color, but everybody was white. There had there was a, an incredible lack of diversity in this little community, and not only in race, but religion and, and culture. And you didn't stumble onto our little town. Like, you moved to our little town for a reason, um, and you knew that you would either fit in or you wouldn't fit in um, just by driving by. And so people mostly came who would feel comfortable and fit into that little community. It wasn't until I was 17, 18 years old that I started to see things a little different. You see, I didn't see, I didn't see much hostility towards people groups in this little town. Even in high school, I didn't. I had two parents, um, a mom and a dad, both lived in the home, both still live in uh, the home. We didn't experience divorce. I have brothers and sisters. We all got along pretty well. But it wasn't until I was um, about a senior in high school and I got my my high school sweetheart. How many of you had a high school sweetheart? A few of you, five of you, the other half here. Having trauma right now because you're thinking about how you always wanted one but didn't get one. I'm sorry that I brought that up so early. See, now you understand hostility though. But... Uh, I met this girl, and um, we started dating, and we fell in love, and everything was pretty good, but um, she was African-American, and she was one of one African-American people in our, in our school. And I noticed that when I started dating her that some people started to look at me kind of funny. Not like horrible, but just kind of funny. Like, what are you doing? And I didn't understand it much in my ignorance. Um, And as I would have conversations with her, I'd find out that that she experienced um, some racism, uh, simply put, um, on a regular basis in ways that I never even understood, that people would look at her funny, people would treat her differently. You see, her dad was an African-American. Her mom was Caucasian, but her dad was out of the picture early on. And so mom remarried another Caucasian, had other siblings who were white. And so in her own family, she was the only African-American. And in this community, in the school, she's the only African-American. And she experienced life differently than me. And I started to see, wow, maybe there's more hostility out there than I realized. And I started to see all of life a little bit different. I started to realize there's some hostility. There's some tension between the jocks and the nerds at school, right? There's some hostility between the, the, the druggies or the metalheads and the farmers, right? And I started to see things a little bit different. I started to understand that sometimes people hate each other just out of ignorance. Sometimes people hate each other um, because uh, they, they have heard stereotypes about another group of people. 
And it's just easier to judge than to get to know. And it's easier to dislike something that you're not used to than to welcome people in to your tribe, to your culture, to your family. And as I got older and I went through college and I started to understand life on a bigger scale, I would see that there are literal physical walls in many cultures, whether it be a Berlin or a North Korea or uh, the Middle East or China. I mean, there are physical walls and sometimes physical realities teach us about spiritual realities, right? And I started to see there are walls, walls, walls. Paul's going to talk to us tonight in these verses about walls of hostility, And some of us, if we grew up in a culture, if we grew up uh, in a family that didn't experience much segregation, separation, hostility, then this isn't going to be very powerful for you. If you don't understand the great divides throughout all the world, throughout all cultures, throughout all nations that separate people, that make one group of people hate another group of people, then it's probably not going to matter much when you hear that we're reconciled to one another. And if you don't understand your own sin and how a holy God has seen us as enemies, even the trains agree, they give me an amen at least, then you won't see the need for us to be reconciled. But if you do see the hostility, then what Paul's talking about tonight is powerful. You see, in the temple, there was a section that was the Holy of Holies that only certain people could go. A high priest once a year. There was the holy place where priests could go. There were uh, a court where Jews could go. There's an outer court where others could go. And then there was the court of the Gentiles. There were literal walls between Jews and Gentiles. And tonight, Paul's going to teach us a lot about Jews and Gentiles. And this is really important because some of this might bore you just a smidgen. Some of you might already know a good chunk about Jews and Gentiles. But if someone was brand new to the Bible, particularly the... um, well, really the whole thing. And they wanted to know, how can I understand some context, some culture about the Bible? Like, how can I understand what so many of these things are talking about? Because it seems so foreign. It's talking about Jews. It's talking about Gentiles. It's talking about all these things. This is one of the top two, three things that I would want them to know so they can understand a whole bunch of the Bible. Because Colossians and Romans and Hebrews and Galatians and a whole bunch of what's written in the New Testament falls around this topic of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So, as we walk through this, I want you to think about maybe some things um, or, or some people, some cultures that maybe you have hostility towards. Maybe you didn't realize it. There's an old saying out there, if you idolize, you demonize. If you idolize being American, then, then more than likely you're going to demonize other countries. If you idolize your gender, Um, you will demonize others. And we have chauvinists and we have feminists. If you idolize your political party, you're going to probably not like the other side of the aisle. All the way down to if you're a Chevy guy or a Ford guy, how are you going to feel about the other? And we're taught this from an early age. But Jesus is a wall breaker and he breaks through. So let's jump on in. I'm going to read to you all these verses and then we'll walk through each one. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, so the Ephesian church is uh, both Jew and Gentile, and he's talking to the Gentiles here. 
You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There it is. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's talk about what it means for you to have an identity of someone who's reconciled in Christ. Going back to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First thing we see is the great divide, Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. So in general, when we talk about Jews, we're talking about, we're talking about those who are by nationality, Israelites, by ethnicity, Hebrews, and by religion, Jewish. Um, when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about everyone else. <laughs> so how many of you are Jewish by religion, Hebrew by ethnicity, or Israelite by nationality? Show of hands. That would be none of us. So, yeah, basically, you're part of that country. So none of us would fit in that category. We are in the Gentile category. Now, it says, remember. So sometimes it's easy for us to get on our high horse, right? And we start thinking we are somebody, but we all have a past. Amen? And Paul's saying, let's just go back to what things were like before. And maybe that'll add a bit of humility to whatever issues we're facing right now. And he says that you Gentile. So let's talk about what it means to be a Gentile. He puts uh, four or five different things that, that characterize Gentile. So he says, you're called the uncircumcision. So that's a nickname, right? Sociologists would say that you uh, tend to nickname those that you love the most and those that you hate the most, right? We don't nickname people we're kind of like, eh, about. We nickname those who are really close to us or those who we hate. And so they're nicknamed the uncircumcised. Not very cool, but it is what it is. Now, it's made by... Um, made in the flesh by hands. This was a physical mark, right, on a man's genitalia that would let him know he's on the right team, 
So this is something that would be important to Jews because in the Abraham uh, covenant that happened 2,000 years before this, that was one thing God said. You're going to know that you're part of the right team by taking this mark. You've got to really want it, right? To be circumcised, you've got to, you or someone in your family, if you're a baby, they've got to want you to be um, on the right team because that isn't probably very pleasant for most people. And so the uncircumcised are Gentiles, people who aren't marked as people of God. Now, just a little bit of history. 2,000 years before this, Abraham is given a promise. He, he is told by God that he's going to be a father of many nations, that he's going to have a promised land, and that he's going to be blessed in a variety of ways. Now, here's where it gets a little weird. Abraham, he is promised that he would be this father of nations, but he's like a super old dude. And so he's got to have a child. Well, Sarah's barren because she's a super old gal. And they get a little bit insecure, and he goes to his concubine, Hagar, and has a baby, Ishmael. Well, later, Sarah has a baby, the promise, and his name is Isaac. But things get weird in the family because it's not cool when you sleep with another gal, but you got one gal that's your wife. One too many is one too many. And so they say, let's get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. And God says, yeah, but I'll have a little bit of pity on them. I'll take care of them a little bit. And they go on their way. Um, but then through Isaac, we see this whole nation of Israel born. And they are the Jewish people. They are God's chosen people. God chose a people. Some of you might say, well, didn't God put up a wall of hostility that he would even choose a people? Well, yes and no. He didn't choose a group of people to be punks like Israel turned out to be. He chose a group of people who were different than the world, and they showed what it looked like to have a real repentant uh, relationship with him and, and to be a light to all the other nations that they would want this kind of life. Well, Israel they didn't do a very good job at this, right? And so they, they kind of turned into punks and they had to have a bunch of prophets and a bunch of people telling them, get back on track. Well, circumcision was a big deal for them because the Gentiles were flat out known as being people who didn't know the God of the Bible, the Jewish God, because they weren't circumcised. So that was one thing that they were called. But also, he says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. So when we think of the Messiah, we as Gentiles, we love the fact that there's a Messiah. We're grafted into the family of God, and it's amazing. But for thousands of years, they didn't care. The Gentiles weren't looking for the Messiah because they didn't follow the Jewish religion. They didn't care about the God of the Bible. They had lots of other gods or no God at all. And they weren't thinking anything about a Messiah. So they were separated from Christ because Jesus was a Jew and he was for the Jews. Now he inherited and, and adopted in Gentiles, but at that point in time, they didn't understand that. And he says that they were strangers, or excuse me, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So they were second-class citizens. Everyone treated like trash. It's not good. It's not fun. But the Gentiles would have been the people that the Jews looked at and said, you know what, you're just second-class citizens. I remember when we were in Utah, it wasn't the same thing by any means, but I remember um, that I would talk to some of our Mormon friends, and we made very good Mormon friends, and some of them were just super kind to us and super loving. And if we went back, um, they would treat us like we were family. But when we talked about how they viewed Christians, they talked about how they have a greater revelation through Joseph Smith, and, and that we didn't have that revelation, and so we were kind of like JV, and they felt very sorry for us. 
because they had God and we didn't. It was awkward sometimes when they would voice that opinion. Now picture that times a zillion. That's how the Jews and the Gentiles functioned. We've got God and you don't. So there's lots of cultural differences. Oh, by the way, we're kind of God's favorites. And you're just a loser. You're a spirit, like you're, you lose everything spiritually. Doesn't matter which God you got, they all stink. Not good. They were strangers to the promises. Not just one promise, many promises. Remember some of the Old Testament covenants? Um, so you've got uh, the Noahic covenant, right, where God says, I'm not going to wash this earth clean of all the people in the same way that I did with the flood. Um, but then you've got the, the covenant with Abraham. I just explained it was all about many nations, and they're going to be blessed, and they're going to have land. But then you've got Moses and the Ten Commandments, and God says, well, if you live a certain way as my chosen people, then I'm going to bless you a certain way. If you don't do what I say, then it's going to go bad for you. Deuteronomy 28 through 31. But then it goes on to David, and they say, okay, here's a covenant that I'm making with David. So God makes a covenant with David. We call this the Davidic covenant, which is, you've gone astray for the last 500 years since I talked to Moses. Let's get back on track. I'm going to promise that through you is going to come the Messiah. So you're going to reign in Israel forever one way or another. That's a good covenant. Then you've got the new covenant, right? A few hundred years after that, six, 700 B.C., um, Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 36 about this new covenant that's coming where we'll be circumcised, not ultimately in the flesh, but in the heart. And the Spirit of God will be in us and a heart of stone will be removed and we'll have a heart of flesh that loves God and wants the things of God and not our sin. Thank God for that new covenant. The Gentiles didn't have these covenants. They didn't have these promises. So they were strangers. They were strangers. And no hope without God. The Jews had all the power. They would open up the Bible, and if a Gentile said, show me where I'm at in the Bible, they would say, well, let me tell you about what the prophet said and what all that we've had and experienced in our history says about you. And so their proverbial Bible, right, you know, they didn't have, a lot of this came through oral tradition. They're, they would say, well, you see um, the story about David and Goliath? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good story. Okay, so we are um, David and you're Goliath. (laughs) Remember the story about like the Egyptians where all these plagues and horrible things happen? Yeah, yeah, that stinks, right? Um, We're the Israelites, you're the Egyptians. Remember the Babylonians and the Assyrians? You know, when we like crushed you guys and gave you a little bit of hope, but then things went bad for you. Yeah, you're the Babylonians, you're the Assyrians. Like They were always the bad guy in the Bible. How would you like to share that with your kids? Hey, look at all the worst people. That's who you are. Find yourself in the story. That's not very pleasant, right? And that's what it was like for the Gentiles. So let's talk about the Jews for a second. The Jews were haughty. They were proud. But if you read through the Bible, they didn't have any real reason to, right? I mean, look at Abraham. He was a pagan, right? He was a pagan before God chose him. Look at, look at Moses. Moses killed a dude, right? And he ran. How about David? He not only killed a dude, but he cheated on his wife. He was an adulterer. Like, these guys were flawed human beings. Here, here's the truth. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. You look back in your family tree far enough, we all come from some junk, don't we? Some of you wouldn't have much research to do. It would go very quick, and you'd say, eh, I got junk right now, and my family's got junk, and we don't even have to dig into Ancestry.com. We could save the subscription money, and I could just tell you what I come from. 
but we all need Jesus. And Jesus reconciles us. And this is good, good news. Do you, um, do you got hostility towards anyone? Do you look down on a group of people? Do, do, you, do you read the news or watch the news and hear about Muslim terrorists and think, man, we just hate those people. And then you dig in and you hear that you are in that line of people. You're not in the line of the Jews. You're the Gentile. Ishmael, he is the father of all the desert, the Arab nations, right? So where Muhammad came from and where Islam was born out of comes from Ishmael. And they see us as the bad guys. And you got to understand You sit in a church like me, and we talk about how we've been grafted into the family of God, but before you placed your faith in Jesus, your family history came through the bad guys. So I'm not saying be like them, but recognize we shouldn't be on our high horse. Verses 13 through 15. You guys having fun yet? I can tell you're loving this message because it's very uplifting to you. Now when you go to Christmas and you sit around talking about your family, you'll think, this is depressing because you heard about your extended family here. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ, that is a good but. That is the best but we've seen in a while. Actually, earlier in, uh, in verse 8, we covered a couple weeks ago, um, that was a really good but. This is a really, really good but in the Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. All right, second thing we see, Jesus died to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles. He died. So it's all about his death and and his resurrection. If that didn't happen, there would not be any reconciliation. How many times have you sat in conflict with someone in your life and you've sat behind your proverbial wall of hostility and they've sat on the other side of their proverbial wall of hostility, both of you thinking that you were right and the other was wrong. If you're married, it's happened. (laughs) If you're not married, well, it's just happened with other people. We know we've all done that. And the Jews and Gentiles both thought they were right and they both had their own arguments. And God's saying, you both got issues and you both can't fix yourselves. And you need Jesus. And that's the good news that Paul's bringing them, is that Jesus can reconcile you. Now, the one thing they did have in common, if you go back and read in the New Testament, is that both Jews and Gentiles didn't like Jesus. Most of them. Jesus was a Jew, But the Jews didn't like how Jesus did ministry and what he did and what he said, and he claimed to be God. And so the one thing that the Jews and Gentiles could agree on in the last several thousand years is that we need to kill Jesus. And so the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders got together and said, yeah, we can make this happen. Little did they know that the very one they unified to kill would be the one that would ultimately unify them. It's amazing how God's word... And how his plan all works together in ways that blow our minds. 
He says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We talk often in the church about feeling far from God or feeling near from God. You got to understand, theologically, you can only be far from God or near to God. In proximity to God, you can't kind of be in between. You can feel in between, but you can't be in between. So if you are not in Christ, meaning your faith is not in Jesus, then you are far from God. No matter how moral, no matter how good you look like your life is and you got it together, you're far from God. Some people say, well, I've got a family member. He's just running from God. He's just doing so many bad things. Or my coworker, he's just horrible, man. He's an alcoholic and he's got drugs and he's got issues. And I say, what does it matter? Like the banker who's the moral dude and lives a quiet, peaceful life, but is not in Christ, is just as far from God as the one running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. Matter of fact, the one running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, at least show us they can run 100 miles an hour in any direction, so maybe they can run in the right direction if we share Jesus. And for those who are near, meaning that they have access to God through Jesus and his death and his resurrection, oftentimes find insecurities and they let the devil just pound on them saying, oh, no. You're not close to him. He would never let you in. He, you, you're not good enough. You keep making mistakes. And we start feeling like, I'm just not close to God. I'm not close to God at all. And the Bible says your identity is either far from him or away from him. You, you, far from him or near him. There's no in between. And so in Christ, on your worst day, you are near God. On your worst day, you are near God. Because it's not about your performance. It's about him and what he's done on the cross. Your position can't change. You can go from far to near, but you can't go from near to far. Now, just like in a marriage, you can be ticked off at your spouse and they can be ticked off at you. And you can feel like there's hostility. But you're still married. (laughs) You're still married. And so your position doesn't change. And he says, you're brought near by the blood of Christ. Why, why is blood such a big deal? You look at Leviticus back in the Old Testament. It says that in the blood is the life of an animal. This is why we have the sacrificial system in the temple, right? Um, because animals were sacrificed and, and, and there is um, death because of sin. And so this blood was what was paid as the price. But ultimately, it's also why animals weren't good enough because they're just animals. But this is why we call Jesus the Lamb of God, because his blood came from a perfect, holy person who just happens to be God. He's the only one that could make anything really change. If I died for you, it would be a nice gesture, sacrificial, but it wouldn't do anything in your relationship with God. He dies and everything changes. And that's why his blood brings us near. For he himself is our peace. Jesus doesn't just give us peace and his spirit gives us peace, but he, as his life was laid down for us, is the peace offering so that we now can go from being not just Jew or Gentile, but one. And then this, through his flesh, this wall of hostility is broken down. That is powerful. And how is it broken down? You've got Jew and you've got Gentile. And and he's saying, you don't have to follow these commandments and be perfect in the sense that you did in the Old Testament. None of you could do it, but Jesus was perfect. And so we're not, we don't follow as Christians the Old Testament law, even though the Bible says we're under the law of Christ. And much of what Jesus says, he's affirming the moral commandments of the Old Testament. So do you have to tithe? Do you have to um, do some things? Well, 
there's, I wasn't planning on going here, but now that I opened that, I feel like I should explain it a little bit. Many scholars would break down the Old Testament law in three ways. They would say civil, ceremonial, and moral. Jesus, he doesn't say, I'm doing away with the law as if it's a bad thing, but he fulfills the law. And so it says that he abolished the law. The moral law of God never changed. The Ten Commandments never changed. So it's not like you could say, well, we just do whatever we want. No, that's lawlessness. That's antinomianism. That's, uh, that's literally lawlessness. But the, cer- the ceremonial law, much of which had to do with the temple, That doesn't apply because Jesus is the Lamb of God. The temple requirements have been fulfilled. He's our high priest. We have access to God. Those don't apply. The civil ones, so things that were given to the Israelites as a nation, God gave them to the Israelites as a nation because they saw him as the king and they were to follow these things. We live in America under a different set of rules. And so we don't have the Israelite rules because their government's different than our government. So... When someone says, do we live under the Old Testament law? Yes and no. (laughs) Uh, We live under the law of Christ, which affirms the moral law of the Old Testament and the commands. Matter of fact, some people look at being a Christian as, well, I don't have to do all the hard stuff in the Old Testament anymore. But if you see, we have the letter of the law in the Old Testament. We have the spirit of the law now. God's spirit inside of you actually will convict you on things in many cases, much smaller than what we saw in the Old Testament. So Jesus tells us in what we've covered on Sundays, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he he tells us, oh yeah, you've heard that you can't cheat on your spouse. I'm telling you, if you even look at someone lustfully, you're already cheating on them. He actually takes it up a notch. So some people think following Jesus is easier than in the Old Testament. It's different, but it ain't easier. And there's grace. And you're not the one who has to be perfect. He's the one who's perfect that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Okay, so this is, this is good. Here, let me, this is important. Now, I hope this is impactful for you. Let's go back to the New Testament and those books I mentioned, Colossians, Romans, Hebrews, um, Galatians. If you read these books of the Bible, they all center around this premise. How in the world do these different cultures, Jews and Gentiles, how do they live and exist together practically as one new man in Christ? Because it's kind of weird. I mean, picture all of your enemies, not just, not, I'm, I'm talking like, think of in your whole life, the bully in third grade, the boyfriend or girlfriend where things ended awkwardly, the boss who was going to fire you, but then you said, no, I'm going to quit first. And you had a weird encounter with him. Picture all of the people that you've had awkwardness in your whole life all joined your family tonight. Your immediate family. And you need to go home and, and figure out how we're, going to, how we're going to do this together. See, this is weird. Well, that's kind of what it's like when the Jews and Gentiles got together. And so, so many of the books, like Corinthians, um, they, they address different issues where the Gentiles are coming and they're saying, hey, got some questions now that we're in the family. Um, uh, okay, um, first question. So, um, I kind of like to get drunk, and I want to celebrate the Lord's Supper as well. If I get a little bit tipsy at the Lord's Supper, is that a big deal? Paul's like, yes, it's a big deal. Second question prostitutes. Let's just throw this around and see where we get. Can I take prostitutes to the temple? I know that's kind of like taking that one person that you want to date, but you don't want to introduce them to mom and dad, and you take them home for Thanksgiving dinner, and then you know you're dating. Kind of awkward, um, 
But if I take them in front of my heavenly, okay, just forget about that one. Here's another one though. Um, what if my dad marries a gal who's not really my mom? Can I sleep with her? Just throwing it out there. And Paul's like, no, well, you guys are crazy. And the Jews are like, wow, are you even asking these questions? And they're like, we're heathens. And we, this is how we've always lived. And then the Jews are like, you guys are crazy. Um, hey, Paul, what about the Old Testament commands? Can we just make all these Gentiles, you know, just kind of mm, do what we've been commanded to do for the last 2,000 years? He's like, no. No, you can't put all that on them. What, what good is the gospel if they got to do all that? Well, yeah. Okay. How about just circumcision? Because the locker room is going to be a little weird if they don't at least partake in that. Can we just do that? And Galatians is all about, no, they don't need to be circumcised. What are you talking about? And, and so they go back and forth and the Gentiles say, do we act like the Jews? And the Jews are like, do we act like the Gentiles? And they don't know what to do. What would you tell them? What would you tell them? Some scholars say, well, in Christ now, the two become in one. It's, it, some scholars would say it's a third race or a new humanity. I don't know about all that. But I would say it's a lot like marriage. If we're called the bride of Christ, and you see in Genesis that when one man and one woman gets married, they leave their mother and father, and, and the two become one. And so when you get married, I, I talked to in premarital counseling, we always have this discussion. Um, I say, it's not just that the guy is taking the girl's family and way of life, or that the girl is taking the guy's family and way of life, even though there's elements of that. It's that you two are creating one new life together. Because here's what's going to happen. If you go from your single life and all the things that you did, and then you get into your married life, and you think, how can I cram my old life into my new life? What can I bring into this? You're going to be miserable because you're just going to be feeling like you went from doing whatever you want to now you only get to cram half of the stuff you want to do into this new life. And it's going to be depression by attrition. Or you say, we're dying to our old lives. We're walking into a new life and we have to create a new culture together, a new family together. And this is a beautiful blessing and it's good. And that's what it's like when you go from your old life into Christ. And so how does this impact us practically? As a Christian, you've you got to understand this is an identity issue. You becoming a Christian, it doesn't mean now you are religious, Right? like a Jew. And it also doesn't mean that you're just a heathen or a pagan like a Gentile. It it means that you follow Jesus and you're a new creation and you're part of a new family. And it's unlike any other family that's ever existed on earth. For the last 2000 years, it's been a combination of a whole bunch of cultures and, and backgrounds all under Christ and his commands and his grace. It's hard to start a new family, but it's worth it. It's Christmas time, so I feel like I've got to share this story. Some of you have heard this one. Um, I'm glad my family's not here because it's always a little awkward when I share it in front of them. But uh, Tara and I, our anniversary is coming up next week. We've been married a handful of years, nine specifically, coming up in a week. And um, so we got married December 6th, and... And 2008. And when we did, we went on our honeymoon and then we came back and it's like Christmas like that. Boom. And, and so I didn't know her family very well. They knew me as this ex-con that their daughter met from Hutchinson. And I know them as this Christian family who's got their own traditions and things. But I'm, hey, well, let's, we're family now, but it's right in the middle of the holidays and they got traditions. And I went as a single dude for like, well, my whole life. And so I don't want to necessarily do everything that they want to do, but I'm, I'm in the family now. 
And so Tara said one night, we're going to go um, look at Christmas lights. Now, I am one of those guys, a little bit of a control freak. So if I'm in a car with someone, I like to drive. Like I'm going to be like, hey, you mind if I drive? I'll drive because I just like to drive, right? And I don't really like Christmas lights. So the activity itself without me driving and going to see Christmas lights just wasn't going to be fun. Well, I sit in the back of this van as we go around town looking for Christmas lights 30 minutes turn into 40 minutes, 40 into 50, 50 into an hour. I'm in the back seat. I kid you not. It's a big van. I'm in the back seat all by myself. I start unbuttoning my shirt because I'm sweating like a dog and I'm getting car sick. But I'm brand new to the family. I can't crush them. They all had like hot cocoa and the girls loved it and everything was, and mom and dad was like, this is wonderful. And dad was like, I'm going to show the best lights we can find. We're going to get to those lights. So we're going to the rich neighborhoods and the middle class neighborhoods and the poor neighborhoods. We're trying to find some Christmas lights. And I'm like, I don't care about these Christmas lights. I'm sweating. I'm about to sick. So I'm sitting there in like a tank top in the back of the car, sweating and sweating and sweating, ready to be done with this. But I couldn't voice my opinion yet because I'm brand new to the family. We finally get done after an hour plus of driving around town to see Christmas lights. And I jump out of that car and I told him that night, I think it was maybe even Christmas Eve. I said, I've I don't ever want to do that again. And so every year it comes up, we always joke, are we going to do Christmas lights? We've, we've never done it since. We've never, I've ruined Christmas for the Baldwin family. They haven't done it, and now it's more of a joke, but it was a little awkward at first. Here's what I'm saying. It's hard to start a new family, but it's worth it. And some of us don't know what it looks like now to be a Christian because we come from a weird background. We wonder, is this church going to judge me? And then others come from a religious background. Like, does this mean that I just got to follow rules? And it takes adjustment. But Jesus says, don't worry about the rules and don't worry about what you look like. Just follow me. And the people around you just know that a healthy church, you just got to ask yourself one question when you walk into any local church. Does this group of people want to follow Jesus? If so, regardless of culture, background, weirdness, and there's always a weird couple weird uncles, I could do this with them. I could do this with them. Let me just throw two notes at you. These last couple things will go by quick as we're running down on time. But I, w- I want to throw a couple notes about going from your old life to your new life. From Jews and Gentiles becoming Christians. Number one, in this new identity, you've you got to understand our past may explain us, but it doesn't define us. So if you said, well, I've been known my whole life as a conservative, great, but, but now you're a Jesus follower first. Maybe you're conservative, maybe not anymore, but you're a Jesus follower. First. Well, I've been known as a patriotic American, red-blooded, great. I'm glad you're an American, but you're a Jesus follower first. Some of you come from the other angle and you say, I've made a lot of mistakes. Great. We all have. You're going to still make some mistakes, but you're a Jesus follower. Your past may explain you and how you got here, but it doesn't define who you are and where you're going. Jesus does. And number two, it's okay to have cultural preferences, not prejudices. Some of us... um, Some of us like things a certain way and we get our preferences culturally mixed up with our theology and we need to make sure we keep the two separate. 
Uh, if you're at Crosspoint, you know we do things a little bit different. We do this whole multi-site thing, and we feel like in this season, God's asking us to do this, and, and we want to make disciples and be effective in sharing the gospel. But guess what? We're not going to wave the banner of multi-site. We're not going to wave the banner of our denomination or our style of music or the type of building we meet in or our strategy for reaching the city. Those things are all worthwhile talking about, and they're good in some ways, not so good in others. We're just going to wave the banner of Jesus. And some of us, we, um, we like things a certain way, and we've got to make sure that we don't demonize people who do things differently. But when you look at other churches in town, be thankful for them. Recognize they were probably a bunch of Gentiles like me. And now we're one in Christ. And our family looks a little different as it's spread out throughout the city. Um, but we're in the same family together. And I think a lot of Christians spend time saying, you don't do it like I do it. Therefore, you must be wrong. And, and you don't do it like I would want to do it. So why are you doing it that way? And God's just wrapping his arms around us and saying, stop fighting. Stop complaining and stop being critical. Just be thankful you're in the family. And that's a good place to be. Verse 16 and 17 and 18. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice all throughout Ephesians. You see the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all throughout this thing. Sometimes in your life you might wonder, how, how is God shown as the Trinity? And does the Bible ever talk about these things? You read letters like this from Paul and you see it's just littered all throughout. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how they all work together to show God as one. Number three, Jesus died to reconcile you to God. So number one, there's a great divide, Jew and Gentile. Number two, Jesus died to reconcile Jews and Gentiles. But number three, he died to reconcile you to God. How amazing is it to think God, <laughs> he reconciled Jews and Gentiles and all of this crazy racism and, and just ethnic differences, all, all these things. He reconciled them, which is great, but how much more amazing is it that he could reconcile sinners to himself? He's holy and he's perfect and we're not. He's not just talking about two people groups to each other. He's talking about a people group to himself. Humanity to himself. You say, well, I see that he killed the hostility by his death. Isn't it amazing how, how we fight tooth and nail sometimes to death with each other and with God, and the way God handles that is by giving his life. His death changes ours. Killing the hostility. Well, I don't really feel hostility towards God. Guys, this is what I said at the very beginning of this message. If you don't understand separation and segregation, not only horizontally, you won't understand it vertically. You say, I don't understand. I don't think that I've been very hostile towards God. That's because you're not the victim. He is. <laughs> that's because he's the one being sinned against. I mean, that's like, that's like going home to your spouse and, and you're just a punk to her or him all the time. And you say, I don't know why you're always complaining. It's like, 
Because you stink at life and you're horrible to me. It's hard to understand the problem when you're not the victim, right? God's the victim and we're the sinner. And we got to understand whether it be Colossians 1 or Romans 5, it says that we were enemies to God. We were enemies to God. If you don't understand that you were once an enemy to God, you'll never understand the amazingness of reconciliation. Just like if you don't understand the fullness of your sin, you can never enjoy the fullness of God's grace because you won't think you need it. If you don't understand the fullness of your hostility towards God, you will never understand the beauty of reconciliation, that he could even welcome you into this family. You won't. I mean, picture, picture your life. Um, and, and if you were perfect and holy, and God is perfect and holy, like you could have access to him, right? The whole Bible revolves around this premise of, do we have access to God? That's what we were created for, a relationship. We need access. And then you sin, and it creates a building block in this wall. And the very first sin created a wall so high that you could never overcome it. You could never climb over it yourself. And then you think about all the mistakes all the mistakes you've ever made and the mistakes you've made today and this week. And you think they just added blocks and blocks and blocks. And you look around and you thought, there's there's no army, there's no government, there's nobody who could get over this wall. This thing is so incredibly huge. And then you think about all the physical walls around this world. And you think, how could anyone break down racism? What a hot topic in our culture. And I hear the, they say this, often they say, let's just keep the conversation going. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what answer are you going to come up with to change a man's heart? We continue the conversation, but it better lead to Jesus or we're just going to have the same stuff happening over and over and over. And, and you look at the walls even built up in a human's heart towards God and pushing God away. We've all done it. You think, who can, who can change this? Thank God Jesus is a wall breaker. This is what his death did. His death crumbled walls. You think about the the access to God when he died on the cross and and he gave up his last breath and it says that the earth shook and the the temple curtain tore. And, And now man, symbolically and literally, we can have access to God through the death of Jesus. Where once there was a wall, there is now access. changes everything. This is crucial for you in your daily walk with Jesus because you've got to understand not only does Jesus' death demolish this wall of hostility between you and God where you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God and again there's no in between but you've got to understand God's not going to build up walls between you and him and he's asking you to make sure you don't build up walls between you and him. And every time you cry out, God, why would you do this? God, how could you do this? God, you must hate me. He whispers the gospel back to you. No, I tore those walls down. The punishment's on Jesus. My wrath has been poured out. I'm a father, so I'm going to discipline you. It's not always going to be easy, but it's good. Last but not least, verses 19 through 22. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Last but not least, we see Jesus died to reconcile you to others. So theologically, we understand God reconciled Jews and Gentiles. All of humanity can have access to him. God, through Jesus' death, reconciles you if your faith is in Jesus. And God wants to do not only something in you, but through you. He wants to shine a light to the world by showing you are reconciled to each other. You get to choose to be ministers of reconciliation. As part of your identity. It should flow through your veins now. And this, uh, your, your, your lifeblood as a new creation in Christ, the blood that flows through your veins screams, reconcile, 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 reconcile. If you see Christians in the church that have conflict and unforgiveness, you, you won't see healthiness. You can't say, God, thank you that I am reconciled to you, but turn around and say, but I will not forgive the people who have hurt me. What he does to you, he always wants to do through you. And you've got to understand that you can't physically, you can't physically say, I, I hate people, but I love God because God says the greatest commandments, love God and love people. They're connected. Your physical reality or your horizontal relationships point to your vertical relationship. If you get this right, it will lead to this getting right. If this isn't right, it shows that this probably isn't right. So, now that the Jews and Gentiles, they are one, the temple has changed. Now, instead of there being a holy place, um, notice how we at Crosspoint haven't given Holy Land tours yet as an option for mission trips, because it's good to go to Jerusalem, it's good to go to Israel, I hope you get to go, it would be awesome. I've never been there, I would love to go there. But you don't need to be baptized in the Jordan, you don't need to go to the temple, because number one, it's not there. Within five years of this letter being written, it was destroyed, and so for 2,000 years it's been gone. But number two, God doesn't dwell, his spirit doesn't dwell in a building built by men anymore. It dwells in a people. And so you don't have to go to a holy place, but through God's spirit, he comes into our lives as believers and he builds a temple. So you are a living stone. That's what Peter says. You're a living stone. You are building a temple of God, not just one that's going to stand high on a hill in Jerusalem, but you are one where his kingdom is built. You are a living stone building a proverbial kingdom that is building every single day. We celebrate those lights on the tree as we share the gospel in our city. We want the kingdom to expand. This is why we care about church growth, not because we're dying to buy a bigger building. Oh, please, no, that ain't true. But we want God's temple, his proverbial temple to be built as kingdom expand, as souls are saved. And everyone who's reconciled gets a new heart because we're part of this new covenant, a heart that loves God and people, one that breeds unity and not division, and one with a new identity, ministers of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21 will tell you all about that. So let me just encourage you as we start to move to the end of this. Every relationship that you have, this isn't really optional, but as a follower of Jesus, 
Every relationship you have should be founded on Jesus as the cornerstone. The Bible says Jesus is the capstone, the one that finishes it off, but he's also the cornerstone, the one that starts it and makes it straight and square in the way that it's supposed to be. And if Jesus isn't the foundation for your relationships, whether it be boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, your children, your coworkers, whatever it might be, you'll notice some brokenness. The cornerstone is everything. It's the first stone. It's the foundation. Everything is, all the walls, everything is squared off of it. If you don't have a good cornerstone, then the whole house will be crooked. I've installed a good chunk of those floating floors. Any of you have like laminate floors? Um, And unfortunately, I've got a decent amount of experience with it. Well, we ripped out a wall in our kitchen um, in the last couple of weeks, and and I was going to put a new uh, floor in. So I got some of that vinyl plank flooring that's supposed to be waterproof and good for kitchens and stuff. And so I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Well, I... I looked at our kitchen and there's appliances and cabinets everywhere and you got to go around them and you're supposed to start against a square wall, right, in a corner where you know that first row and second row, if they're not against a a square corner, you're going to have issues throughout this whole thing. Well, me being a little bit of a punk and maybe a little lazy, I didn't want to start against the square wall because there was vents and all kinds of stuff in my way. And I thought, I don't want my first row to be all chopped to pieces. So I'm going to go uh, over here and, and it's going to be flowing into my living room. And long story short, there's no wall here. But I think if I just stack some stuff on it, it'll be all right. It won't move on me. And so I link the first row together. It's doing all right. And I'm just making sure it's good. And then the second row. And as I smack, smack, smack into this thing, um, it's moving. But I'm thinking, it's all right. Third row, fourth row, I start building this thing. I start to see little cracks. Because every time I take that mallet and... And the back end of this floor I'm building is not hitting a wall. It's moving and it's shaking itself ultimately to pieces. And you're going to wish that you had a better foundation for that. The further you go, some of us have relationships right now that are not healthy and they're not God-honoring. And we haven't had Jesus as the foundation, meaning we haven't thought, I'm going to have this relationship, whatever it looks like, for the glory of God, meaning I'm going to seek to honor God in it. I'm going to treat them with the commands of Christ, the grace and mercy of Christ. I'm going to forgive them. We're going to do this the way Jesus wants it done. And you're seeing cracks because every time conflict hits, you're seeing it's breaking apart. And some of you can trace this brokenness throughout all the relationships you've had. And you realize maybe it's because Jesus wasn't the cornerstone. And then when you address the topic of reconciling, when there's conflict, you question, should we even reconcile? Is this even a relationship I should be in? Here's the good news. Just like that floor, you can start over wherever you are. And it might require some hard work and some tough conversations. But you can go back and say, you know what? This relationship hasn't honored God up until this point, but I want it to from here on out. And and maybe they don't reciprocate and treat you well. But you've got to choose. This isn't about how they respond. This is about my relationship with God. Because ultimately, those who draw near to God will draw near 
to each other and the relationship will be strengthened. And maybe if they're not drawing near to God, but you are, then it's either going to lead you out of that relationship or you'll just have to be a light shining in that relationship knowing the other half's going to be pretty dark. But you won't regret it. And every time that you see that that person treats you like junk or, or maybe it's a relationship that you can't leave, maybe it's a family member, and you say, gosh, they just won't receive forgiveness and they won't walk in grace and they don't understand what I'm trying to do. I want to make this work. Then you'll just be reminded, oh yeah, that wall of hostility, that's kind of like the one I had with God most of my life. And this is kind of the way I treated God. And you'll have a little sympathy, but you'll recognize you can't change from being a minister of reconciliation back to not because it's in your blood. It's part of being a new creation. So simply leave you with those two challenges and questions. Who in your life do you need to reconcile to? Are you treating someone like junk? Is there a relationship that's not honoring to God? Maybe there's a long lost family member that you've thought about. Should I contact him? Should I contact him? Should I contact him? You got to understand this isn't just a life choice for your preference, whether you want to continue that relationship. It's a reflection of the gospel. And number two, who in your life needs to be reconciled to God? What, how many bulbs do you need to turn on that thing because you need to talk to some folks about Jesus? And tell them that you've been reconciled to God and that they can too through the gospel. What better Christmas gift than eternal life? It's, might cost you some comfortability, but I believe God will show up in amazing ways if you take steps of faith to share your faith. Let me pray for you as we leave here.